Hello everyone, welcome back to the Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. Welcome to the show, Wamas here. One of my writers in this case, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Matthew. The Weepy Voice Killer calls of regret. The format of this show, if you're new here, well, first of all, welcome, welcome, welcome. I've never read this before. It's a brand new script to me. Uh, I'm going to read it. We're going to explore it together. It's going to be a good time, or probably not, because it's going to be all about murder. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting over a cough. Ah. The first phone call. 911 operators. Are you 911, right? It's not 911. That's a terrorist attack. Oh god, I said terrorist in the first minute. Whoops. That means my probably won't get monetized on YouTube. This also goes out as a YouTube show, by the way. If you're just listening to it and you want to watch it, there's all sorts of stuff that is added, so you can check it out on YouTube. Yes, yes, yes. 911 operators arguably have one of the most difficult jobs in the world. Every day, without fail, they take emergency calls from people all over the country. And while some are false alarms or nothing too serious, there's, there's plenty where they have to deal with the trauma of hearing someone screaming for help or, God forbid, the final moments of someone's life on the other end of the line. I would hate this. Like, I hate all this stuff. The other thing I always think about, I've mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned it before on this channel, but it's like there are people out there who, like, they have to find stuff on these social media platforms that the social media platforms don't want on there, like terrorist beheadings, um, all sorts of the nastiest, horrible shit that you can imagine. And it's these people's jobs to just look at that and be like, no, 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 that is traumatizing. Oh my god, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do this 911 stuff. It, I just, I'm too weak. I don't have the constitution for that. That's why I have to just sit behind a desk and record videos. It's less traumatic. Although somehow I chose to do a true crime show, which is, uh, you still, I still think about Pedro Lopez. That dick. The date is New Year's Eve 1980, and on that day, one poor emergency operator answered a 911 call at 3am from St. Paul, Minnesota. The call was brief. The voice on the other end was that of a man sounding emotional and distraught. His voice was trembling, each word sounding as if he was crying hysterically. Just please, this is an emergency. Please send a squad to Pierce Butler Road, Malberg Manufacturing Company Machine Shop. Please send an ambulance to. There's a girl hurt there. She's lying on the ground in the back by the railroad tracks. When asked if he knows the physical address of the location, the caller says, I don't know, and the call suddenly cuts off from there. Police and an ambulance were dispatched, and arriving on the scene, officers and paramedics were met with a terrible sight. A young woman sprawled out in a snowbank, completely naked, blood gushing from her head. This was 20-year-old college student Karen Potak. She was a student at the University of Stevens Point and had been out that night with her sisters at a New Year's Eve party. As the night drew to a close, Karen decided to head home by herself at around midnight. I believe it goes without saying, but no matter who you are, if you're walking home late at night, do so with a group. Do not go walking off into the cold night by yourself. Bad things can happen if you're not careful, and sadly, this was the case here. I don't want to say, like, obviously that's good advice, but I'm like, that doesn't apply to everyone in every situation. Like, I walk home alone like if i've been out with a mate like we'll go have a drink or whatever and it gets late and it's like i'll walk home and i always have walked home alone but it's also different because i'm a dude and i live in a relatively safe city and i don't know i've also i've also just never had any crime done to me like uh my my brother-in-law he uh this he was this was in london and he got mugged and i was like holy shit. <laughs> i don't know if i've known anyone who got mugged before and so i'm sounding so sheltered right now i am pretty sheltered everyone knows that but I've just never had crime done to me, and so I don't really think about it. And maybe one day I will get mugged, and then I'll be like, oh, okay, be more careful in future, fact boy. 
An intoxicated Karen was walking near Pierce Butler Road and Syndicate Avenue on that chilly winter night. A figure leapt from the shadows and accosted her. Yeah, if you're an intoxicated woman in a big city walking home late at night in a shady part of town, just don't be doing that. Do it with friends, call an Uber, get a cab. Do something else other than this. Not that it was her fault in any way whatsoever. Obviously, she is the victim. Just to make that 100% clear if it wasn't already. Tire iron in hand, the figure bludgeoned Karen across the head over 10 times before retreating into the night, leaving their victim in a growing puddle of her own blood. The attack had been so vicious that Karen's skull had been cracked open and her brain was exposed. She managed to survive, but she has sustained multiple severe brain injuries and had no memory whatsoever of the attack, let alone the ability to describe her attacker. Sadly, she'd be the lucky one. We now jump into the darkness once more, dear viewers, as we hear the deafening ringing of a phone. And on the other end is a rather disturbed individual, one who claimed several lives, all the while allegedly regretting every second of it. Don't talk, just listen. Months would go by, and no new leads would be unearthed in the case of Karen's assault. That is, until the 3rd of June, 1981, and unfortunately, it would come in the form of another attack, this time a fatal attack. On June the 3rd, 1981, 911 dispatchers received yet another panicked call. Once more, the man was hysterical. Once more, the man was crying. And once more, the man brought quite terrible tidings. God damn, will you find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. The call cuts off from there. That evening, a group of teenage girls were spending time together walking through a wooded area north of Superior and Anita Streets near Interstate 35E. As they were walking, they came upon the brutally mangled body of a young woman. She had been stabbed in the chest, the stomach, and the inner thighs 61 times with what forensics would conclude was an ice pick. It was also determined that she had been strangled with a shoelace. The victim was soon identified to be 18-year-old Kimberly Compton and a high school graduate from Wisconsin. She had arrived that evening by bus from her childhood home in search of a new job and a fresh start. She was unsure of her surroundings, however, and accepted the kind offer of a ride from a man in a diner across the street. That would be the final mistake of her life. Don't get in cars with strange men, young women. Just don't do it. I'm going to hammer. I have a daughter. I'm going to hammer this into her. Do not do that. Do not do that. Call someone. Call me. Call a friend. Call uh, anybody. Like, it doesn't matter what time it is. I'll give you a ride. Or I'll, you know, just open up Uber and call an Uber. Please don't do this. I know this was the past and stuff, but still, make don't do this. Police once more were at a loss. They had no idea as to why Kimberly was targeted or what could possibly have warranted such a heinous attack. There wasn't even any sign of sexual assault, so one avenue of motive was discounted almost immediately. When interviewed by the American true crime TV show Mark of a Killer, St. Paul PD Sergeant Joe Corcoran stated, It's very unusual to use an ice pick to kill somebody. Two days after the discovery of Kimberly's body on June the 5th, the killer would call once more. He'd apologize all over again and promise to turn himself in, but he never did. On June the 6th, he called once again to say that some accounts in the papers about the murders weren't accurate. Then on June the 11th, he would call once more. Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry for what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. I don't know why I had to stab her. I am so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every day, but I can't believe I did it. It's like a big dream. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anyone else. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. 
Police pinpointed where the call was coming from and rushed over as fast as possible. Luck wasn't on their side, though, as by the time they reached the location, the caller was long gone. It was at this point that they attempted to match the voice from the newest calls to any in the database, and they came up with a match to the voice that called in in regards to Karen Botak back at the end the previous year. At a loss for what to do, the police released portions of the 911 calls that the suspect had made and said suspect quickly became known by the moniker, the weepy-voiced killer. I'll never get into heaven. The police were still lost in the woods for a suspect when a new body was found. On the morning of August the 6th, 1982, a paperboy was out on his morning routine, walking along the Mississippi River in Minneapolis. The young man received the shock of a lifetime when he stumbled upon a dead woman laid out on the bank of the river. She had been stabbed over 100 times by what looked to be either an ice pick or a Phillips head screwdriver. In regards to the crime scene and how it appeared, the body was attempted to be covered up. Minneapolis PD detective Don Brown was quoted as saying, This probably wasn't his first time killing. It didn't take long for the police to identify the victim. This was 40-year-old nurse Barbara Simons. She lived on the Minneapolis side of the Mississippi. When investigating her recent whereabouts, the police quickly discovered that the night before on the 5th, Simons was spotted at a bar called the Hexagon, where she was approached by a man asking if she had a cigarette. The two spoke for some time before Simons informed a witness, He's cute. I hope he's nice, since he's given me a ride home. Oh, oh my God. Like women... I know I, this isn't surprising to me or shocking to me, and I know this already, but it's like, it's different being a woman. That's like, yeah, you've got to think, like, I'm going home with this dude, and he's just probably more physically powerful than me, which is really intense. That's really intense. She got into the man's car, and they drove off into the night, and that's all she wrote. The police were now on high alert. They wanted to speak to this man, and they wanted to speak to him now. Did he have any information on what happened to Simons after he dropped her at home? Was he actually the killer they had been searching for this whole time? Luckily, this time, they had a description, thanks to several witnesses at the bar. A bulky man of about 40, 6 feet tall, 185 pounds, dark complexion, black moustache, and receding black hair. Just as things were starting to look up, 911 received another call. It was the suspect, and once more, he was crying. Please don't talk just listen. I'm sorry I killed the girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. I don't know what's the matter with me. I'm sick. I'm going to kill myself, I think. I'm just going to. If somebody dies with a red shirt on, it's me. I've killed more people. I'll never make it to heaven. Distressed and blubbering, the call ended again before any new information could be had. I've listened to every one of these calls multiple times in order to transcribe them correctly for all of you, and believe me when I say that they don't get easier to listen to. The sad thing is that it's honestly difficult to tell if the voice on the other end of the line is simply acting at being remorseful, as many sadistic killers are known to do, or if he is genuinely devastated by his awful actions. Regardless, murder is murder, especially as bloody and as violent as this, and he couldn't get away with it forever, and thankfully, he didn't. As it was clear that a serial killer was on the loose at this juncture, investigators reached out to the FBI for aid. Working together and going off the descriptions given by the waitress and other witnesses, they combed through their database and came up with an eight-person lineup of suspects, showing the photos to each witness. They all agreed on the same picture, all identifying the same man as the one who had been with Simons that final night. The police had hit pay dirt, and they finally had a name. Paul Michael Stefani. The voice on the other end of the line. Before we carry on, let's rewind for a moment and take a look at just who Paul Michael Stefani was.
Born September 4, 1944, in Austin, Minnesota, Paul was the last born of ten children to a Catholic family. Remember, folks, this was the olden days, when the Bible belief was to reproduce like rabbits and uphold those good old-fashioned family values with your humongous family, for Jesus, of course. While maybe not all the good Bible beliefs, as his parents ended up divorcing and his mother remarrying when he was three years old. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's common, isn't it? Just pick and choose the bits you like and just leave the bits you don't like. It's fine. People were leaving comments on a, on a previous video that I'd made um talking about my disbelief how there are people who believe that the bible is to be literally interpreted like every word is like the truth like without question it's not a uh, parable or story or lessons it's just the absolute truth and how i found that crazy and people were like bro bro lots of people believe this and it's just still it's just so mental to me it's, it's obviously parable and story i mean i think it's mostly fiction with some history thrown in it's here that things seemed to go downhill for old Paul, as his stepdaddy was a bit of an arsehat and had this proclivity for beating his stepchildren. Mm, that's gonna, that's, you know, don't f up your kids. It's a lesson here on Cash Crim. At times, even tossing them down the stairs of their family home if they pissed him off enough. Ah, terrible parents making terrible serial killers ever since the dawn of time. Not much is known about the rest of his childhood, but we do know that he moved to St. Paul in the 1960s and married a woman named Be Beverly Lyder, fathering a child with her, but the two eventually got a divorce. Stefani had several jobs over the years, including acting as a shipping clerk and a janitor at Moorberg Manufacturing Company Machine Shop. As time went on, he would lose every single job it ever held, blaming his bouts of epilepsy on his time at the machine shop. How that particular job caused him to develop such a condition, I don't know. Make it make sense, Paul, make it make sense. Eventually, all the rage and frustration from his constant failing reached its boiling point, and on multiple occasions he would return to his old employer, one of those times carrying, coming across Karen Potak. And from there, we know how things play out. Mostly. We'll get to that soon enough. I have to say, this police work is... Uh, this episode's quite short. I can see we're already about halfway through. And I'm like, it's just good police work. There are these women. They were attacked. They they get they piece together these things, these pictures from the FBI in the database. They're like, it's this dude. They find the dude, and now they go after him. Bravo! <laughs> it makes for a short episode, doesn't it? Final attack and capture. For now, we're back where we left off, and the police now have Stefani's name, and he has skyrocketed to the top of the suspect list in this spree of attacks and killings. A surveillance team was set up at Stefani's apartment complex, one who watched his comings and goings for several days. Why they just didn't bring him downtown for questioning, I'll never understand. They had witnesses positively identifying him and placing him with at least one of the victims before her death. You'd think that that would be more than enough for at least a round of questions. No, nothing, just the same police incompetence all over again. All righty, then I totally disagree, Matt. I totally disagree, Matt. I think that this is uh, solid police work. I think that, okay, so they've got some eyewitnesses, which we know is not always super reliable. They've got a, he hasn't been tipped off. They've got a great opportunity to observe him and catch him in the act of some criminal behavior. And that is going to be much more of a lockdown in a court of law and much more likely to get him convicted than if they bring him in, they tip their hands. I think this is absolutely solid police work. Not often we have such a disagreement, Matt. Um, I think I think this is good. I'm pretty happy with this. I think it's why the episode is short. Then on the 21st of August, 1981, Paul Michael Stefani left his apartment and got into his vehicle, taking off into the night. Officers followed after him as the suspect made his way into Minnesota, but eventually 
they lost track of him. The killer was in the wind. I bet they regret not taking him sooner, huh? Well, now, okay, that's some incompetence. Obviously, if they're not taking him in, they run the risk of him going into the winds. But I think they wouldn't expect that to happen. I still think they're absolutely going to be able to find him. I'm desperately crossing my fingers that he doesn't kill someone else in the meantime. But I absolutely understand why the police did what they did. I don't think it's incompetence. I think this, I mean, him getting loose is incompetence. But not taking him in to build a better case, I think is fine. Totally fine with that. Stand by that. That night, oh god. 19-year-old Denise Williams was walking the streets, uh, working the streets, sorry, as a sex worker when she was driven up on by, you guessed it, our old buddy Paul. After shooting the ship for a few minutes, he asked if he could purchase her services for the night. Agreeing on a price of $100, she jumped into his passenger seat and the two of them drove off. Now, normally, we know how the situation goes, and if the cases before this are any indication, we would be correct in thinking that this was the end of the line for Denise. However, Denise was one tough cookie, and she wouldn't be taken so easily. Excellent. As the receding hairline ripper turned into a dead end, Denise suspected something was amiss. She'd been feeling uneasy for some time, as her newest hookup had been taking her to dark suburban streets instead of the more convenient and brightly lit freeway as one would assume he would do. Her suspicions were soon proven correct, as before she could act on her instincts, out of nowhere, her newest John produced a screwdriver and began stabbing her viciously. He managed to stab her a total of 15 times, his car seat becoming soaked with blood, before Denise eyed an empty glass bottle he had laying on the floor of the passenger side. Gripping it by the neck, she brought it down as hard as she could on the monster's dome, shattering it and causing his head to breed profusely from the head and face. Excellent. Like this. Go, go, go. Denise fell from the car as the killer cried out in pain, her screams alerting a neighbor nearby. He attempted to confront Stefani, but the killer threatened him with a screwdriver before driving off as fast as he could. An ambulance was called, and Denise was treated for her wounds, telling the police once they arrived everything she knew, and even giving a positive identification on her attacker. A badass. A true survivor. Then, as the police were gearing up to finally take this piece of garbage into custody, news came in over the dispatch. A new 911 call had been made. I need an ambulance. I'm all cut up. I got beat up and I'm bleeding. That's right, poor Michael Stefani, after getting his bean cracked, actually returned to his apartment, saw how badly he had been hurt, and called 911 for an ambulance to treat his wounds. And on top of that, he used the same voice he'd used in the previous calls. If there was ever any doubt, it evaporated in an instance. The police and an ambulance arrived at Stefani's apartment, and after getting him bandaged up, the weepy-voiced killer was finally taken into custody. When questioned by the police, Stefani tried to play off his injuries as the result of being the victim of a robbery. That's not gonna that's not gonna work because they're gonna they already know it's you. I guess you don't know that yet. And the uh, the person you just stabbed is gonna be like, Yeah, that's him. That's definitely him. And how did he get the head wounds? I smashed him over there with a bottle. <laughs> Yep. The police weren't having any of it, though, and they knew they had their man regardless of whether he wanted to admit it or not. Detective Brown brought out the case file. They had every page detailing the crimes Stefani had been involved in over the last year, and that's when he brought out the picture of the victims. According to Brown, Stefani got up from his seat and said, You're not going to pin those on me, and his voice immediately changed. He went to a high pitch. Right away, it struck me as the voice I heard on the recordings. Stefani was taken to trial for the assault on Denise and the murder of Barbara, pleading not guilty to all charges laid against him. During the trial, both his ex-wife and his sister, along with a woman who lived with him, were all brought to testify. While on the stands, they were played the recordings of the 911 calls he'd previously made, each one of them positively identifying the voice to be that of Paul Michael Stefani. In the end, Stefani was found guilty of both charges, receiving 18 years for the assault of Denise Williams and 40 years for the murder of Barbara Simons. His one final phone call. 
For 15 years, Stefani simply kept quiet, refusing to speak on his crimes and living out his sentence behind bars. However, in 1997, he was diagnosed with skin cancer and he was given a year to live. I think we all collectively just went, oh no! Regardless, given this terminal news, our resident crybaby reached out to the police. He promised to confess for his own peace of mind, along with the completion of one request. A picture of his mother's headstone. I guess even a vicious killer can be a mummy's boy. To quote, I'd rather go to the grave knowing this is all taken care of and off my chest. To this day, I can't believe it. I wake up in the morning thinking and hoping I'm dreaming all this. But then I say, no, Paul, you're still in jail. I don't know what to do, except say, I wish I could turn back the clock. This is this is like one of those cases where it's like, yeah, this guy's a horrible murderer. But it's obviously just like there's something broken in his brain. And he knows it. And he hates it. It's that's pretty intense. With that, he finally confessed fully to both homicides that had been suspected of, as well as the two assaults on Karen and Denise. It was during these confessions that the police received a shock. Stefani confessed to a third murder, one that they were completely unaware of. This was the killing of a 33-year-old schoolteacher, Kathleen Greening. Back on the 21st of July, 1982, she had been scheduled to go on vacation with a friend of hers named Carol Kellogg. Arriving at Kathleen's house that morning in order to get breakfast and hit the road, she found it strange when a knock on the front door went unanswered. Trying the door, she found it unlocked. Calling out into the still, silent house, once more, she received no answer. Now worried, Carol searched the house until she finally arrived at the bathroom. Opening the door, she came into a walking nightmare. Kathleen was inside, naked, face up in the tub, with her head underneath the tap, dead as a doornail. It was determined that she had drowned, and police originally wrote it off as an accident. And at this point, me, Simon, and everyone listening may collectively facepalm. Again, I kind of disagree with you here, Matt. Um... We, are you not giving me a ton of context or like more information here but people drown in the bathtub it happens it's rare but murder's also rare and like the police i don't i don't think this is bad police work i think they see someone in a bathtub who is drowned they're like the person drowned in the bathtub is there any evidence that it's murder there isn't really any it seems so i don't know why the police would jump to that conclusion necessarily I don't think this is it's probably not the most thorough police work ever do i think it's bad police work no 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 it wasn't until stefani's confessions and checking on the time and details of the death that the police were able to link him to the death of kathleen the method of the kill was very different from stefani's usual mo drowning as opposed to violently stabbing and unlike all the other attacks it wasn't followed by a sobbing phone call however stefani knew details of the killing <clears throat> as well as the layout of the woman's house that only the killer could possibly know. And whilst going back through the evidence, police took a look at Kathleen's address book. The name Paul Less was written within, clinching it for investigators. Kathleen Greening was the third victim of the Weepy Voice killer, and just like that, our monstrous timeline is complete. When asked about his motive, Stefani never gave a concrete answer. The closest he got was that there was a dark voice in his own mind that on occasion would bubble to the surface and whisper to him, Paul, it's time to kill. So, was it a mental illness that encouraged Paul to take the lives of those three unfortunate women and attack two others? Was it simply a matter of rage for all his misfortunes, along with some kind of sick payback for his past lovers leaving him? I suppose we'll never truly know. One way or another, Stefani did what he could to clear his conscience before he died, stating that, Mother always told me, if someone hurts you, go to God. And I suppose this was the only way he thought that he could do it, with the time that he had left. I think that he was mentally ill. I think that there was something in his mind that he couldn't control and he didn't like it and if it didn't force him to do these things obviously he took these actions but they're the result of him not being right and i think this is 
yeah, that's what's going on. I, and I think he does regret these actions. One year later, on June the 12th, 1998, Paul Michael Stefani, the Weepy Boys killer, succumbed to his cancer within the medical ward of his maximum security prison. He was 53. I suppose the final pressing questions in regard to this whole case is these. Why did he call 911 all those times? Did he, in his own way, wish to be caught and jailed? Did he feel true remorse for the terrible crimes he committed? As I, as I said, yeah, I think he did. Was the guilt he felt in regard to the two women he'd maimed and the three lives he'd stolen real? Or was it just a ploy to get his name on TV and in the papers again? We'll probably never know. I disagree again, Matt. I think he stayed silent for 15 years. The only reason he's talking about it is because he wanted to get it off his chest. He wanted to talk to investigators, not journalists, not the press. I don't think he had any interest in that. He was just mentally unwell, and that led him to murder, and he didn't want to. And yeah, I think he regrets it. Do I feel bad for him? No, he murdered three people, Jesus. But like, in the sense of him not being able to control it, does it make him less guilty? No, but that's tough. Either way, it's here that we remember the victims so that the names will remain, even when all else has faded away. Karen Potek, Kimberly Compton, Kathleen Greening, Barbara Simons, Denise Williams. Three lives lost, two changed. I can only hope that the three who were lost can rest easy and the two who lived were able to move on with their lives and make their remaining years happy ones. As for Paul Michael Stefani, he's long dead now, 24 years in the grave. Whether they were crocodile tears or real ones, he left a dark mark on this world, one that will never fade. As we step out of the shadows of this tragic case, those same questions will linger. Either way, Stefani was adamant to his dying day that his regret and apologies were real. It's on us now to say whether we believe him or not. All I can say is I'm sick and I'm sorry, if sorry means anything, after 15 years. Yeah, I think he was sick. Upstairs. Um, this is a short episode of The Casual Criminals. Thank you so much for watching. Um, unlike Matt, I think this is short because of competent police work. Great stuff. And thank you for watching. If you're enjoying this show, please do leave it a review. Also, it's on YouTube. But if you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.